Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Lewis Reining. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as part of the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska, plus an interview with someone who's written a book about local haunted areas in Charlottesville and nearby counties. But right now, we're joined here in the studio by Emily Hayes, news reporter, and Billy Jean-Louis, education reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. So as we often do, let's uh, talk this week about growth or potential growth in Albemarle. Emily, can you start off and, and tell us about a recent easement that's happened? Yeah, so the largest conservation easement in Albemarle County is about to go into place, um, and it's by the West Virginia governor, Jim Justice. Um, so the James C. Justice companies, uh, this is really interesting, I think, because they owed Albemarle County $300,000 in taxes until this June um, but now they're contributing to one of the county's top goals, which is keeping rural areas rural. Um, so the county has approximately one-fifth of their land in conservation easements, where landowners get reduced taxes in exchange for never developing their land. So in this case, this property is more than half the size of Charlottesville, um, and it can have a maximum under the easement of 10 dwellings, um, but they could still log on the property. So, um, you know, Rex Linville, who does a lot of conservation easements for Piedmont Environmental Council, told me that there's a misconception that, you know, it's sort of a hands-off kind of woodland um, environment once you put a conservation easement on, and instead it's actually preserving a working landscape, is what he said. Um, So they will, the James C. Justice companies and any future landowners as soon as the easement goes into effect, we'll still have to use, you know, sort of best practices for lumbering. They're agreeing to that and some other things in the easement. Um, I say once it goes into effect because it has not yet been recorded in the courthouse. So, you know, but all the signatures are are almost there except for one last one from the county. So uh, you touched on a little bit, but I'm curious too, just in your conversations with uh, those involved, how do you think this uh, plays into this larger discussion about growth in Albemarle and what it should look like and, and trying to, those who want to keep Albemarle, parts of Albemarle rural, um, what is the significance of this? Yeah, so uh, so the conservation easements are one side of a strategy that the county uses with, to keep the rural areas rural. You also have to keep these areas they've designated as development areas developed. And, you know, you have to have really vibrant commercial life there to help sustain the county's revenue so they can provide services throughout the county. Speaking of which, Billy, the, there's been a recent announcement. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and the, uh, what the response has been? Of course. So Castle Hill Gaming will hire uh, 106 STEM-related workers. And so as the company recently announced plans to invest $1.3 million to hire uh, these people within the next year, uh, I had the opportunity to talk to CEO Arthur Watson, um, who told me that the company is considering diversity as the nation 
uh, faces a shortage of minorities in the science, technology, uh, engineering, and mathematics uh, workforce. But the, the big question is, how do we hire these people? So uh, the company told me this year it teamed up uh, to launch an internship and it has future plans to provide similar opportunities. Uh, they, you know, to recruit minorities, they, they attend job fairs at college across the state, uh, as well as training uh, their management team on diversity and inclusion. Uh, the company also wants to allocate time and resources to area schools and uh, organization that focus on STEM in education art and design and to do this story i also had the chance to talk to some of the people at uh willow tree uh they're starting early so by that they're trying to invest in local organizations that expose students to stem so you know the company the company has provided financial support to um computer for kids and they also allow children to tour the company and ask questions. Also, they're getting um, an apprentice program uh, off the ground. And so, you know, uh, Willow Tree will train uh, someone so that, you know, they can, they will, they'll be provided with shadowing and mentoring um, uh, experience. So um, other strategies that Willow Tree is taking uh, include sourcing and for sourcing what they're doing by that is reaching out to qualified candidates online they're also uh, participating in virtual career fairs that are dedicated uh to women um there is a website called fairy bus god and uh essentially that organizes uh career fairs uh, for women and then the company goes and they have these virtual career fairs and they get the chance to talk to women candidates. Another uh, strategy that they're, you know, they're taking to somewhat, you know, recruit people is using tools like Textile. And Textile, uh, what it does, um, it helps companies to better describe uh, job openings. So what companies will do, they'll plug in the job description so the website looks at the job description and um, gives that job description a score. So that score, uh, after receiving the score, uh, that description, then the, the company will uh, pick up, not the company, but the website will pick up all the words that are not universal uh, to people. F for instance, if someone says, uh, we're looking for a ninja, uh, we're looking for a walk star. So some people might not identify themselves like that or if they're if they're saying they're looking for an expert. So uh, Textile will then pick up these words and then give, uh, you know, that company other words to use so that they do not push away uh, certain candidates. So, Billy, you've obviously talked to a lot of people, done a lot of research. I'm curious, in, in such a, a complex um and nuanced topic like this, was there anything that really stood out to you uh, that surprised you or uh, statistics or um, anecdotes that you weren't expecting? Of course. So uh, in talking to Reggie Leonard uh, at UVA, one of the things that he told me was um, the community, the community for Latino black and women workers already exist. So one of the things that he 
heard was the fact that uh, some companies have argued they don't want to weaken their pool of candidates. So by saying they don't want to weaken their pool of candidates, the the community, like I said, the community for minorities in SIM already exists. There are plenty of people in that field. So because they're underestimating these people, that's why uh, maybe there might be a shortage. So these people, they're like regularly or not said, they're not, they're, they're not underrepresented. They're just underestimated. So by saying they don't want to weaken their pool of candidates, it's not that they don't have the people to hire. It's just saying that um, they're underestimating uh, these people, per se. Emily Hayes is the news reporter, and Billy Jean-Louis is the education reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Find out more and read the latest at charlottesvilletomorrow.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU and Teej FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on this show are, of course, just that. Opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia. Well, we turn now to state news, and as we always do, we check in with our friend and journalist in the Richmond area, Peter Galaska. Peter, good morning. Good morning. So there was a special session of the General Assembly this week, but it lasted just a few minutes. It was uh, set to address gun control and not anything, literally nothing got passed or voted on except to close the session. Um, take me through this, uh, what happened? Well, it was a bit of a debacle. I mean, the um, uh, Governor Northam, uh, Ralph Northam, had called for a Democratic call to the session after the uh, mass shooting in Virginia Beach, uh, May 31st, that killed 12 people in a municipal office building. And, um, you know, what happened was that the uh, GOP-controlled General Assembly shut down everything in the session uh, within 90 minutes, saying they would, you know, move it to November 18th, which is after the uh, November... um, you know, general election for state offices that uh, where all the seats in the General Assembly are up. Um, this was uh, typical. Uh, the GOP has shut down any substantive gun control measure for years. It's been 12 years after Virginia Tech, and nothing has been done. And um, so it's all, you know, become very political. And according to some of the, the families of the victims of the Virginia Beach shooting, it's been a real tragedy and kind of an insult to them. Looking ahead, I mean, this session was, there was a lot of weight on this session around what it would mean heading into November. Uh, Would the Republicans make any changes to gun law and would that be a campaign issue? Or in this case, they just sort of, you know, set up a brick wall and there's no changes. What's what's this, uh, what are they betting on going into November election? Well, I think it's kind of like go go for broke, because what you're seeing, though, is a creeping creeping uh, blueness into the electorate. And polls show that many Virginians favor some measures of gun control. And uh, and yet the GOP is answering to mostly rural uh, people and some suburban ones um, who are adamant about, you know, their Second Amendment rights, which they interpret the way they want to. Whereas the, the incoming people into the state who are new voters and, and younger voters uh, tend to say, now, wait a minute, let's have some reasonable gun controls here. I mean, you know, you need like, you know, you know, 30 shot 
through 30 bullet magazines, uh, you know, can't you ban, um, you know, weapons from municipal buildings? Uh, they're banned in courthouses and things like that. And that seems to work. And so you know, you're just seeing like, you know, it's kind of go for broke attitude. One outcome could be that this fuels a democratic push um, that will take the both houses of the General Assembly come the November elections. But we'll see. The, uh, the Republicans are really kind of rolling the dice here. Well, and to that end, I mean, the role of the NRA is also a big role here, right? Um, they support yeah. a lot of the Republican lawmakers who uh, who are in this, and, and it seems to also translate beyond just gun stuff to a whole kind of cultural battle, the, the NRA sponsors. It, that's true. One thing to remember about the NRA, though, is that the NRA, according to especially the Washington Post and its reporting, is in, in great internal trouble. I mean, you know, they've had leadership changes, they've had financial irregularities surface, and I don't know how. I think there's that. I don't know how that affects their political cloud in Virginia. But you're right. I mean, people are seeing gun control as a touchstone for all kinds of social issues that go on and on, such as uh, abortion rights, women's rights. Uh, minimum wage laws, everything. It's sort of uh, morphing into a lot of things that go really beyond just the gun control issue itself. And, um, you know, I think there there's a reactionary force here where a lot of the older conservatives do not like the fact that things are changing, times are changing, and the electric's changing. Well, Peter, that might be actually a good segue into our second segment today. Let's travel over to Hanover County. It's just north of Richmond, uh, where Ashland, Virginia is. Um, but Hanover's been a, a kind of a hotbed of Tea Party activism since the around 2010 uh, with Barack Obama's election. Um, there have been a series of stories lately up in Hanover about the far, yeah. the far right in that county. Take me through what's going on. Well, there's been a lot going on. Actually, um, Hanover's been, I mean, it was famous in the 1960s for banning uh, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird from its public school system. Um, and, uh, and it goes on and on. The problem with Hanover is, is basically this. All the suburbs around Richmond, as around any urban area, have you know become more progressive, not progressive, but more modern in their thinking. They used to be rock-red Republican conservative areas, but with more people coming in, that isn't the case. And that's been the case with Hanrico and Chesterfield counties, uh, which have been voting more and more middle of the pack than just hard right. But Hanover's kind of stuck in a time warp because it's got a fairly progressive group in Ashland and in Mechanicsville. But a lot of its power comes from the still rural and farmlands on the outskirts, and that's what really controls the Board of Supervisors. And so they've had, a, and recently there have been a number of issues that have come up about Hanover. One was that a, a, the, there the school board is still appointed. It's one of the few districts in Virginia where the Board of Supervisors uh, appoints the school board. Well, a woman who was just finishing out her first term was not appointed, reappointed because she supported a move to rename uh, two schools that were named for Confederate generals and the president of the Confederacy. And that struck people as very retaliatory and very regressive. Then on um, uh, one weekend recently, uh, a dozen or so members of the white Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, a North Carolina-based Klan outfit that participated in the right, in, in Charlottesville in the summer of 2017, um, you know, cattle hold a recruiting rally there. Which, you know, okay, that's that happens in Charlottesville, too. But what happened was that the chairman of the Board of Supervisors, W. Cannaval-Peterson, you know, was asked about it. And he came kind of a pretty tepid, you know, saying, well, everybody's got a right to protest. Most people said, well, I, I really 
disliked the Klan. That's what a lot of people would have said. But then he came, came back in a letter to the editor of the Richmond paper saying that he didn't mean that, whatever. He was misinterpreted. But it's just, just sort of, you know, shoring up kind of, you know, this, this kind of last, you know, grasp of really the old line, old, old conservatism that still lurks in many parts of Virginia. Well, around the state, we, we you and I talk about uh, the newspaper industry and the, the media industry more broadly quite often, uh, anytime there's a big change or layoff situation. But there's also upstarts, these news upstarts around the state. Yeah. And um, you and I have followed the, the development of the Virginia Mercury for a little while, and there's now another one covering state news in kind of a similar way, a digital-only upstart called the Dogwood. What's going on? Well, it's just sort of an interesting reaction. Um, both of, both were sort of have some progressive roots because um, the Virginia Mercury is funded by the Hopewell Fund, which is, um, you know, I think it's based in Washington, and it supports various, uh, you know, socially active groups. I'm not sure who's funding the Virginia Dogwood. I saw it online once, but I didn't have time to copy it down, but it appears to be, you know, the same kind of idea. And um, the Virginia Mercury is actually founded by former Times Dispatch and Virginian pilot reporters, and some of their better ones who are, you know, quite smart, young. And um, one of the things that they are doing, which is encouraging, is that they're worried. I'm sure that if they just hang around the traditional newspapers, they're just going to face layoffs because so many good people have been laid off over the last two decades at both places. And um, they're doing aggressive reporting that a lot of times the mainstream media can't afford to do or doesn't want to do. The Virginia uh, Dogwood appears to be in the same, same doing the same thing. As the old print newspaper um, version or model dies or changes or becomes much weaker, it's kind of encouraging to see new ones rise up in their places because it does fulfill a very essential right of people to know what's going on. Yeah. You know, the thing that you and I have talked about, though, is we can get these national brands and we can get some digital upstarts that can do enough economy of scale to do maybe a statewide operation with three or four or five reporters. How do local communities, how are they going to get the information they need, especially in places that aren't well-heeled to have their own local upstart? Well, that's kind of sad in a way. It's kind of, there's a mixed bag there. For one thing, and we just talked about Hanover County. The Ashland um, newspaper folded about a year or two ago because it just couldn't support it. Um, there was some, one school of thought from a business model that hyper-local news was the way to go, but I'm not sure that's so because the old advertising model was you know, using big department stores, which don't exist anymore. And um, this food still exists and cars still exist, but it's really hard for them uh, to, to keep things going. Some some you know local publications have do well and have really big margins, but um, you know it's still they're under threat as well. I mean, it used to be like the middle sized metros were the first to really be hurt. Now they're being hurt too. All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much. Sure, take care. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. And now we talk with Susan Schwartz, author of the book, Haunted Charlottesville and Surrounding Counties. Today we're joined by Susan Schwartz, author of the book Haunted Charlottesville and Surrounding Counties. Can you start off by giving us a short description of your book? It covers from like Albemarle County and surrounding counties. So I have Madison, I have Nelson, 
I have all the way down to Culpeper Orange um, and all the way down to like Goochland and Powhatan in those areas. It's a book about um, the history of the locations as well as what's going on there now as far as the hauntings and the driving all over Virginia to get to each place. It's in a specific order, so it's easy to access each location. You start off the book by talking about a personal experience getting a little spooked in a graveyard. Could you tell us about that? Yes. A friend of mine, Pam Kenny, who also writes um, haunted books, uh, mostly for Richmond. She's done one for Haunted Virginia as well. We met her over at Cold Harbor Cemetery, and we were just going to walk around, take some pictures, because we had heard that you could sometimes see soldiers in the background or hear cannons going off because it was a, a battlefield at one time. And we were walking along the graveyard, and I happened to notice this in the woods there. It was a it was a grave back there, and I had been over to clean it off because it was covered with debris, you know, tree branches and leaves and all that. So I'd been over to clean it off a little bit for the person, and I kind of froze. It got really, really cold, and I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. And my father and Pam kept on talking. I could hear them, but I couldn't really respond. And about after a minute, what seemed to eternity to me, but it was about two minutes probably, I stood back up and they said, what what happened? And I said, I just got stuck there. I was very cold. I couldn't move. And Pam at that point said, you know, you probably had a ghost walk through you. It was just very, I wasn't scared, but it was very, very interesting thing to happen, you know, especially in that location. So that was kind of my initiation into looking at haunted places and what happens there. What is a ghost? A ghost, um, there's so many there's so many definitions out there of a ghost, a spirit, a haunting. It can be anything from a severe, like a murder or a traumatic experience. It can be somebody having to relive the last few moments of their life over and over again. It could just be somebody coming back to visit and, you know, saying, Hey, I'm I'm here, I'm okay, I'm fine. You know, there's just so many different things it can be. I like to think of them trying to come back and tell us they're okay. You know, they passed on. Hey, I'm okay over here. I just want to let you know that. In the beginning of the book, you talk a little bit to skeptics. How did you come to think about ghosts in this way? And what are you hoping skeptics of Supernatural will get out of the book? Um, well, I, myself, my brother and I both, uh, we're kind of, I, I believe in the, the, the veil, you know, cross the veil. I believe in that, but I'm also a skeptic. And I say that because there is no real proof. You know, you have to kind of believe that something's going on there. My brother is a diehard skeptic, so he was a great choice for um, coming along to the different locations. He did my photography for me. And uh, a skeptic would be somebody that just needs, like myself, needs that proof that, you know, there is something there. As far as the book, I'm hoping I've included seven to eight pictures of images that we got. We had a lot of pictures that were iffy. This could be, this could not be, but we blew them up and we made sure that we followed it to the letter of what the genre was. I mean, you know, some of it was like light reflections, some of it was like tree reflections in the window, you know, this sort of thing. And so I tried to include, I say we tried to include pictures that had actual images in them that we could not explain ourselves. And again, that's where my brother comes in because he's a true skeptic. And when he would look at a picture and go, well, I can't explain that at all. I knew we had something. So that's what I'm hoping that, you know, skeptics will read it and say, oh, I want to go visit that place and see if I get something just to see, you know, just to see what's out there. So I'm just hoping it's a, it's a fun book for people. 
it's a learning book for people because there's a lot of history, a lot of Civil War sites, uh, a lot of presidential homes and such. So I hope people enjoy it and go visit some of the locations and see if something, you know, transpires for them. In addition to those spots that you just mentioned, I've noticed there are also a lot of hospitals and courthouses and jails and prisons. What do you think Mm -hmm. about those spots makes them particularly ripe for haunting? One of the jails was Albemarle County, the old jail up there. And when I visited there, you just got really a sad feeling. Jails are just sad places anyway. So I think that's part of that. And I think part of it, the caretaker there had told me that he had had several occasions where he was sitting out for a tour, like on Halloween night or, you know, what evening during the week. And he would hear footsteps and never find anybody there. Um, as far as hospitals, the Stiff Hall at UVA, that's where they did a lot of the uh, autopsies and, you know, they learned about different anatomy and such. So they, that would be, they have a light down there. I think there's one and off. People turn it off and it comes back on. Uh, when you go in and visit Hillsman House, they first, when you first walk in the door, it was like an OR theater right there. They had a table set up with accoutrements from back then, saws and leather things for the patients to bite for the pain and that kind of thing. So a lot of people, uh, soldiers, in fact, died there. They have a little boy that supposedly runs up and down that great hall, right? When you walk past the OR theater, there's a hallway, and that little boy runs up and down that little hall there. There's also, like, blood stains on the floor that they've actually covered up now with, like, pieces of hard plastic, so it won't get messed up any further. So, And another place that they've done that, too, is the Exchange Hotel. They have a room, I think it's on the second floor, where it's set up like a hospital-type setting, and they have like a either mask, which you don't ever see anymore. But they do have a blood stain right up underneath the table where they say it's been there for ever since, I guess, the Civil War. It's very old and very interesting to look at. They have a lot of different spirits there as well. I was really struck by the story where people went upstairs yeah. and then came back downstairs and they were like, wow, what a great tour guide. It was like she lived in the era. And they were like, there was no one upstairs. <laughs> Yeah, there was another one, that one-legged soldier I was talking about earlier. Two women, I think, had come down and said, oh, we love the one-legged soldier. He was awesome. And they were like, we don't have a one-legged soldier. Also, I'm trying to think of the other place, Graffiti House. Mm -hmm. There is a gentleman, Michael Bowman, who had a room up on the second floor. And on a tour I took, two women complained of being pinched when they got to the top of the stairs there. And they said, you know, Michael's a flirt. He likes to pinch the women. So that's probably where that came from. So you may not even see a ghost. You may get a poke, a pinch, or, you know, a push. I have been pushed. Different things have happened. And it's just fascinating me when I hear other people say, oh, that happened to me too. So you know you, you know what really happened. It wasn't just your imagination. In addition to the ghost stories, you do a lot of historical research. Can you tell us a little bit about how you think of the connection between ghosts and history? Well, a lot of the battlefields, people I talked to in the area said, we still hear the cannons booming or we hear the shouting of the men as they run through. So I think history and ghosts kind of go together because these people are reliving their moments or they're they're trying to find that lost love that, you know, maybe died or left the area before they returned. I think history has a lot to do with it. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, I read a lot of stuff about him, his home in Monticello. There's a mysterious ghost that hums up there. And they said, you know, Thomas Jefferson used to walk the hallways or down by his garden. And he'd hum or sing a tune. So they think it's, he has returned to his former home and making sure it's still running as it should. So 
you know, what goes on with hauntings and stuff, I think they, they go hand in hand because I think people's spirits are trying to right what kind of went wrong and get back on the, the, the side they want to be on. One last question. What tips do you have for people uh-huh. who go to some of these sites in your book and want to see, have a supernatural experience? What sorts of things should they look for? I would just go with an open mind. Take your camera with you. Take pictures of everything. You know, I find a lot of mine sometimes in windows, sometimes up the stairs. Sometimes just they just appear from, you know, wherever, as you've seen from the pictures in the book. Sometimes I got it out in the woods. You have to go with an open mind. Say, okay, I'm going to look and see what happens, and I'm going to enjoy myself. And, you know, don't be thinking about, oh, I'm going to find a ghost. Just say, well, I'm going to enjoy the location. I'm going to see what the history is behind it. You know, just go and take pictures and see what you get. A lot of people have said they wish there were more ghost pictures in there. And I write them back, and I say, well, sorry, they don't really cooperate when you want them to. (laughs) Not every place you're going to see something. But I think it's also fun to read about the history and then go visit the place. As they say, if you don't learn about history, you're doomed to repeat it. I just hope people, if they're into this kind of thing, they go out, they get the book, they enjoy it, visit some of the locations and have a wonderful time experiencing history and a few ghosts along the way. It has been so fun to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Susan Schwartz. Her book is called Haunted Charlottesville and Surrounding Counties. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Louis Reining. Our theme song is Kiel Jabi by Marwen Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Have a great week.